This is a special subject pregame.com podcast on Philadelphia betting syndicates. I'm your host, RJ Bell, speaking to you straight from Las Vegas, and I'm joined by two experts when it comes to East Coast betting. The number one expert, Vegas Runner, a professional batter here in Vegas, but who spent many, many years in Philadelphia. And Marco D'Angelo, our GM of picks, 29 years in the business, and a native of Pittsburgh. Okay, so let's get right to it. The motivation for this podcast, and I found it to be very interesting when we were talking about it in the office, was a question of the week from Dunadan, D-U-N-A-D-A-N, from Pregame Forms. You can go to the forums by going to pregame.com and clicking forms or going directly at pregameforms.com. <clears throat> and what Dunadan said was, hey, it seems like that Philadelphia especially is a hotbed for sports betting, sports betting syndicates, and he wanted to know about how these syndicates differ from the other syndicates, why Philadelphia, and why that culture, you know, tell us about that culture was really his question. So Vegas Runner, why don't you jump in? Let's talk first about the syndicates. One, you can explain what a syndicate is a little bit, and number two, compare Philadelphia syndicates to the other big boys. Okay, uh, a betting syndicate's a, a group which either has their own handicappers or has access to some of the sharpest handicappers on the planet in each particular sport. What these guys do is get the game where there is an edge and filter that game through bookmakers throughout the country, through sports books here in Las Vegas and Nevada, and offshore, obviously, which is getting most of the handle nowadays. Um, why does it come from Philadelphia? Truth is, Philly's always been known as a sports betting town. Um, it's always been accepted there. It's never been a problem. I believe the reason that uh, most of the syndicates came out of there is because of the available outs in Philadelphia. For you to be able to move steam, you need outs. So, right, so, so outs, you mean? Places to wager these games. Okay. And... Obviously, you want to center around areas which have more bookmakers, you know, so you're going to have more luck finding bookmakers in Philadelphia than you are in North Dakota. Um, so that, that's one of the, the reasons I think that most have evolved from there. Um, Philadelphia has always been a, a sports betting town. I mean, it, most guys bet before they get their driver's license. It's an accepted thing. It's not, I mean, guys that get pinched, no one gets in trouble for sports betting, really. Okay, so know? when you said it was never a problem, are we talking about the authorities? That the authorities at that point, uh, during when you were coming up, looked the other way? Is that the implication? Absolutely. Until it gets to a more organized level and there's extortion, you know, and if there's problems, obviously authorities are going to get in. But when it comes to just straight bookmaking and betting, there's more of a uh, look the other way type thing in, in Philadelphia. If a police officer's seeing a kid on the corner handing out or collecting football pulls, he doesn't really care. You know, it's one of them type of things. And, and growing up in that culture, obviously you're, you're going to do the same things everyone else is doing. What your older friends were doing, you're going to do. Um, so, All right, it, so tell us a little bit. So you now you grew up in Philly. What years of your life were you in Philadelphia? Uh, from nineteen well seventy two till nineteen ninety five. Okay, so, so good twenty five years. Okay, so and in general, you would say at what age did you start getting interested in sports betting? Um, 
I knew about sports betting from really young. My, my first bet was actually, I was in fifth grade. Um, I didn't get introduced to the, to the point spread until I believe like middle school is when I knew that you had to lay points or get points. No more straight up stuff after that. Um, and by then, I mean, by the time you're, you're, you're out of middle school and in the high school, you, you've got full-blown bookmakers. You know, most kids have already gotten in a jam by then. So you're saying, so you're saying, fifteen year old kids are calling their book? Absolutely, yeah, yeah, for sure. And I, when did you make your first bet? Uh, the, my first bookmaker I had when I was thirteen. Yeah, yeah, thirteen. I remember betting when I was fourteen. My birthday in June. Four, I'll turn fourteen. So you were betting baseball? Yeah, yeah. And I, I was thirteen. <laughs> so you were getting a dime line, I hope. No, no. Back then it was a twenty cent line, <laughs> and it was like. You, you had to lay five and a half, and you took six. You know how baseball was. It was on $50, not on $100 like they do now where it could be 10-cent line. We paid a 20-cent line, didn't even know better back then. <laughs> okay, so let, now let's go to Marco. The thing about Marco is the joke we have around the pregame offices is the biggest bet he ever made was on the Black Sox scandal <laughs> in 1919. So this guy's been around the block, and he spent – now you were in Pittsburgh up until last year, and you grew up there, right? Right. Um, Pittsburgh's always been a hotbed for all types of betting, whether it was sports, horses, poker. Um, my three favorite vices are that, you know, sports betting, horses, and poker. I'm involved in all of them <laughs> extensively. And um, So women are fourth? Well, let's, you know, what, what can we say? Uh, <laughs> times are changing. Um, the one thing that I'll say is with... Uh, I can remember back whenever I was probably about 10 or 11, going with my dad into the local pool hall. I can remember this one pool hall that we would go into, and they had a little restaurant in the front, and they had some pool tables in the back. But then there was a third room. And that third room, I remember, I never used to go back there. My dad would, you know, leave me at the booth for a minute, and he'd go back there. And, I, you know, one time he finally let me go back with him. And I was, like, amazed. And... It was as close to a Las Vegas casino as you could possibly have for Pittsburgh. I mean, they had, but it was chalkboards, but they had all the games up on the board. They had TVs going, and you could bet the horses, bet sports. And I just, you know, it was then that I could say, you know, this this is where I'm going to be. You know, I, I like that. And um, I started running uh, football parlay cards in, you know, junior high. So when you say running the cards... I would print the cards off. We, you know, had I had access to a copier, and uh, I'd get the lines out of the, you know, the paper back then. Uh, so you were booking the action. I was booking action then, but what I was doing is the money I was making off of the money that I got from your bet. I took that money to fund my betting. Sure, that's what that's, we all did. That's that's how I did things back you then. You booked so you could bet for free. Right, exactly, and you know, guys, the parlay cards. So these I, were how old were you at this point? Junior high, you know, and and so the bets would be now. Were, did you have the ties lose and that like three? Oh, like absolutely. Three teamers pay three to right. one and There's, ties yeah, lose. No half points on those parlay <laughs> cards. That's for sure. <laughs> okay, so it's interesting, and in, in you know, pregame in a way we take an approach with things that involve uh, experience, but we also try to take an analytical approach. And it's funny. Recently, I've been reading a book. Just finished it by. Um, it's a actually a number one bestseller now by um, Malcolm Gladwell. It's called Outliers. And what it discusses is how you how your uh, one of the things it discusses is how your upbringing dictates the man you become. And Bill Gates, for example, had access to computers that no one else his age or rarely or hardly anyone his age had access to, and that had a lot to do with his success. So I think what 
we're seeing here is when you're 12, 13 years old and the culture is about batting, you become a batter. And when you're 12 or 13 and the culture is about computers, you probably become a computer guy. So for maybe not for our benefit, but for pregame.com's benefit, we were all around the, the, the batting. So maybe VR, you can talk a little more culturally about, you know, were your friends all batting? Was it something where you had guys, maybe you were 15 and they were 20 and you looked up to them? Tell that, us a little bit exactly about That's exactly how it was. I mean, e eventually you want to bet because everybody else is betting. Um, so you turn it into a friend who has a bookmaker. Eventually you want to get through to the guy on your own. So he sets up a meeting. Now you have a bookmaker by the time you're 15 or so. Um, and, and that's just pretty much it's Philly's a kind of city like, you know, like Pittsburgh and a lot of them East coast, um, New York where people, it's okay to get by on your wit. You know, it's, it's, it's appreciated. Now were any of your friends <laughs> at the age of 14, 15, 16, was anyone thinking about college? Some, yeah, yeah, I, I believe so. Yes, yeah, some, but, but some, for you, you're, you're clearly a bright guy. You never, you never really thought on college. No, no, and, and to be honest, I was always fascinated by what these guys were doing. Um, I really was. That's how I got into bookmaking. I really thought that what these guys were doing was an art. I mean, they're finding a way to take the money for, from betters and everybody's happy and everybody's still calling back the next week. So, I mean, I looked up to these guys and after paying them for so long, you know, you're either one of them guys that grows up and becomes a degenerate gambler or never bets again and goes on the straight and narrow and gets his normal nine to five job. Or you do what I did and a lot of other guys, you know, in my position now did and they turn to bookmaking. And that's, that's what happened with me. I said, why should I, A, keep betting, and B, turn in action, lose in action, to someone else? Um, especially since back then, no one was sophisticated that I was taking action from. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, to, later on, yeah, and that's how we got into, with the betting syndicates, that's how I, I got into that. that um, so just to be clear then, is once you moved to Vegas in 95, you were on strictly on the batting side of the window. At yeah, 100%. I had stopped bookmaking. I came out here for one reason, one reason only. Back in Philly, and I know anybody from back there that's listening to this is laughing, we were all chasing the same dime. And after a while, the well dried up. Um, I mean, a steam play gets passed down, gets passed down, gets passed down, and eventually all the books end up you know, getting nailed with sharp action. And what happens is they drop you, they cut you off, they don't pay you. And I decided that I could come out to Las Vegas and do what I do in a higher capacity and more professional level. So for your benefit and the pregame.com's community's benefit is now extending the concepts in Gladwell's book. His point is that not only would the culture around you dictate what you do, right? So, okay, your buddies are betting, so you're betting. But number two, because you're, bet because you're in that culture so much that you reach what he calls the 10,000-hour plateau, and it's usually about 10 years, is the concept is you can't really get extraordinary at something for 10 years. And even someone like Mozart, who started when he was eight years old, really didn't do anything major till he was 21. So it's interesting is you got guys now finding betting in college and all that. And in theory, they're not going to be 
10,000 hours or 10 years of expertise until they're in their 30s. A guy like you, a guy like Marco, when you start when you're 13, now you guys have 30-some years, you know, 20 or 30 years of experience, and that's that level of expertise that you just can't, you know, well, you can buy it at pregamepros.com, <laughs> but an individual, can't, you, you got to earn that through sweat and tears. You do, and I mean, I could, I sat and I've explained this, you know, how I work, how I handicap, um, different sources of information that I have and how they approach this sports betting market. But unless you've paid your dues and you've made your bones, it's a very difficult racket to really comprehend, to really understand. So as a better, Marco, maybe you can tell me if you have these experiences. I know when we talk about games, oftentimes you have trouble putting it in the exact words. It's an intuition. But in reality, intuition is just a lazy word for the fact that you've got these 30 years of experience starting when you were, you know, as old as you may be, you did start when you were 14 years old. And that experience is something that, that you can't always put your finger on, but you've seen this before. It's a feel. It's, you know, people say that, you know, somebody's a natural at something. And, and I believe that when it comes to sports betting that I am a natural. And whenever I can look at a number and, and get an opinion off of it immediately, and then I dig deeper to back it. But I'll give you two fast stories from me and my back in the day. You know, part of it is a fascination of the lifestyle. And, you know, growing up, one of the places that I hung out the most and I don't want to stereotype it, but I am of Italian descent, obviously, so I can. But there is that, you know, stereotype sure, to sure. the Italian descent that, you know, connected. Right, people right. Getting in at. And I used to hang out. One of my best buddies had a pizza shop. And this guy came literally over on the boat. And some of my best memories of my teenage years and, you know, in, up until my 20s um, were hanging out in that pizza shop in the back poker games, betting, and the guy had the best cheesesteak hoagie this side of Philly. And I remember one time I had to take money for him that he lost a big bet. And he rolled the money up like a hoagie, put it in the foil, put it in, you know, the hoagie wrapper and then the bag. And I, I went like I was delivering a hoagie. And I remember taking it to the bookie for him. And the, the guy's name was Jimmy. And he goes... That's one hell of a tasty hoagie. <laughs> and, you know, and it's just, it was an infatuation. I mean, I'm talking about, you know, being 17 years old and I'm delivering a $10,000 hoagie. You know, that gets you. That sucks you in. You're hooked. And one of the, the other stories that I remember is there was a place in town on Saturday and Sunday mornings. All the local guys, they got there for breakfast. And all they did is they, it would be like, everybody would be chatting. I like this. I like that. And that's when I learned the premise, these guys all lose. Because when everybody was zeroing in on the same game, these average Joes, and I call them, that's when I coined the phrase John Q. Public, when they're all on the same game, that they see it that clearly, if it's that obvious, it's not. And that started my foundations for some of the theories that I've made a living on for 30 years. And it's funny because in my experience... A reoccurring theme with guys who end up being sharp as adults is that one of their greatest aspirations growing up was to be sharp. 
is the reality is if you're losing consistently, you're not on a pregame.com podcast. So the guy, and you're not betting for a living, you're betting your, your paycheck that you're working for. And, you know, we don't have a lot of interest in providing that information. So the guys I talk to are sharp. And the thing is, they, they aspire to be sharp. And I hear it in both of you guys' stories is you were younger and you saw, one, the public in their typical ways lose. And, two, there's people that do win. And I want to be like the people that do win. And in psychology, there's something called a sense of mastery. When you when you feel like you master something emotionally, that's a very powerful thing. And and I think that's what drives us and, and you two, I think, fall in that category for sure, is a sense that you, yeah, you're not going to win every game. You're going to have the losing streaks. But you've put in 10 plus, 20 plus, 30 plus years of work to master this and you aspire to it. And I want to just add one thing, you know. BR and myself were probably two of the most contrasting styles of attacking sports betting. And but nobody has a right or a wrong style. It's what suits you. Right. VR is a high volume guy. I try to pick my spots. And again, you said something your culture of your environment. And one thing that I can remember from the first time my dad took me to the racetrack to bet the horses. He said something to me, and it stuck with me forever, and that's kind of how I do my sports betting, too. He looked me in the eye, and he said, remember this. You can beat a race, but you can't beat the races. And that's how I started to develop that, you know, I look for that big spot. Instead of spreading my money over 10 races, I get those couple races that I got something solid on, and I pound it. And I think that's a great strategy. I think the difference is that that makes a high volume approach viable in sports betting is your 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 only your uh, the hold percentage of the house or the theoretical hold for for dog tracks and horse tracks can be up to twenty percent, and in sports betting it's less than five. And and again, it allows you to play at a higher volume. Though I do agree, guys like you, Marco, guys like Stan Sharp that play lower. Stan Sharp's only one play a, a day. The lower volume gives you a much better chance of winning in any given time period. High volume gives you a chance to have those monster months and those monster years. Right. And for me, I was like that too. I mean, I used to like to find a game and I would unload, man. I mean, I'm talk when I was bookmaking and I wasn't betting steam, when I was just bookmaking, and as a book, you get a feel. I mean, you get a, like that word that you said is the most important word and it's feel and you either have it or you don't. That's the number one reason I believe there hasn't been a supercomputer invented that can go 70% against the spread. Or even 55%. Exactly. Because you need feel. It is it is a lot it has a lot to do about numbers. I learned that by watching these guys, you know, how they handicap games. But in the end, you need to have that feel. That's what's gonna separate the winning from the losing. And what took me into volume and stopped me from unloading on them big games was when I was introduced to steam plays, to smart money, and I started betting for these guys, and I'm in these offices, and I'm betting, and I'm betting 10, 15, 20 games sometimes, and then we'd have lunch, and we'd sit in the office, and I'd have the TV on, and I'm watching the game with my buddy. We're the youngest guys in there, and a touchdown comes through, and we're cheering. And I never saw a guy come out of the back room so fast, slap me in the back of the head and unplug the TV because 15 of the games were losing that day and the one we're watching is winning, you know. And that's when I was sat down and explained 
it's not about one game. It's not about one week. It's not about one month. It's about doing the right thing over and over and over and over and taking advantage of that edge that we have over the books. And, and the way I talk about it sometimes is that it's like having a uh, blackjack table. Steve Wynn, doesn't, he wants as many tables as possible because he knows he has an edge on every one of them and he wants those as active as possible. I personally lean more towards, and I think for general batters who are not the, 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 the very highest qualified pros, I think you either follow a true pro like Vegas Runner or if you're using your own stuff, you keep low volume because it's hard to know. You know, the funny thing is 50% sends you to the poor house, 50% winners, 55% makes you where you don't have to work a job. That 5% difference is only one out of 20 games. And to be able to define that as an amateur is very difficult. So you want to lower your volume or follow a real pro. It also brings up the point that that feel they're talking about, that 10,000 hours is something that they, that helped them gain this intuition is something that takes them from 50 to 55. It's not that they know every line or every game exactly right. It's one out of 20. There's something from their past helps them pick the winner. I believe what's helped me the most in my career and what's allowed me to bet on sports and make a living and provide for my family for this long of a time um, is that I was introduced into this game to look at this as a market and nothing more. Like a stock market. Exactly. I mean, the guys that I worked with and worked for, and I, I mean, it was a privilege. And although I know more and probably 90% of the guys listening to this know more about sports than any of them guys, them guys have won more games in their lifetime than probably anyone else will. Um, that was the difference. Okay, so uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Finish no, your point. So, so what I was trying to say is that you, when, you, when you get into sports betting, you have to find an approach. What's going to be your way to do it? And I do it my way, which is look at it like a market, look at the numbers, look at the price, take advantage of my edge and grind out a profit. Marco, Stan Sharp, guys like that. Honestly, I look at them and I envy it because I wish I could do it that way. You know, and I'll tell you what I've learned is that syndicates, you know, guys like that, they take games from a Marco, game from a Stan Sharp, a guy that you know is going to win long term that only has one game, one game here and there, um, and are willing to bet these games because they do have a winning record. So it's what approach you're going to use that works. And, and the beauty is understanding what your strength is. Your strength is your network. Marco's strength is his handicapping. And, and that brings up a point uh, as we come to the end of this podcast here in the next few minutes is over those 10,000 hours and decades and decades, you gain a network. For you, Vegas Runner, it might be all these syndicate people you know and professional bettors that call you or you have a game you feel strong about, but you call your friends, you talk it out. It's collective IQ. It's, it's everyone. The group is smarter than any individual. That's exactly and how we All work. these years in this business has developed your network. And Marco, I think your network is more handicapper driven. You're not necessarily looking, and, and tell me if I'm right here, you're not looking for someone to tell you the steam. You're talking to your handful of guys that you know win almost as much or as much as you, and they help you finalize that card. It's always good to talk to different people that have different um, avenues for handicapping. It's just even with uh, BR and myself, we take different roads, but when we end up landing on the same game, right. 
taking different paths to get there, it's powerful. And, and that's something that I do. And there are a few people that I respect in the industry that I talk to, and that does support what I do. And, and RJ's absolutely right, because if I was just on my own, if I just had myself as a resource to, to handicap, I don't think I'd be able to produce more than three games a day. I just don't think anybody can, on their own, produce more than three games on, on a nice-sized board and, and do the work required to, to win enough to, you know, to turn a profit. And that's where, why I'm able to do volume because I have, through the years, worked with a lot of people that have proven to me they win more than they lose. And it's the, the proof is in the pudding. The odds makers would not be moving their games three points, four points if these guys didn't beat them year in and year out. Uh, truly, the syndicates are, are a vast majority of the time the, the groups or, or the batters moving the number. To me, one of the most powerful things about the Internet is that the networks that Vegas Runner and Margo took decades to develop, in a way, the Internet is the ultimate network. You jump into the pregame forums. Uh, and again, you can get there directly, pregameforums.com, and you've got hundreds and hundreds of contributors who all have their own network. You've got Vegas Runner, you've got the pregame pros, many of them, giving you information. For example, there's a guy, great guy on the forum, Steve Beave is his name. He's out of Oregon, I think. And he understands the Pac-10, and he understands the um, West Coast sports as well as anyone I've ever met. He doesn't even, you know, too much spend too much time other than that. But he's a specialist in that area. Now, Vegas Runner might know a guy like that through his, you know, all his networks. But the reality is, when you're at pregame.com and in the forums, you know them people or those people too, because we're all coming together collectively and trying to help each other win. So, in a way, the Tuition you can't buy unless you buy it directly from these guys. But the network is something you can have for free now when even 10 years ago that wasn't the case. Yeah, I mean, it's incredible now. Like I always say, and I say it to you, I say it to RJ, that if I could start over in my career today, although follow the same footsteps, but have at my disposal what people have today, the access of information that's available I mean, hopefully uh, this many years I probably would have been retired, you know, because you have so much power at your fingertips. Like you said, the network is so huge. There's so much information that is out there that, you know. And it's coming from individuals. All the All the stats and all that, everyone's got that. The same, we all look at the same numbers. Yeah, the, but when you said like a Steve B who's going to tell me something about Oregon that very few people know and probably not even the guy that put the line up looked at it as deeply as he did. Now that's a game I want to move. The only difference between Steve B betting it and these guys betting it is they're going to bet it. They're known well enough and have the reputation for winning. So when they bet it and they get down, the casino is going to move their line. But not saying that their you know handicapping method or their approach was any better than what Steve puts up because seeing some of the things he's written on Oregon, well, Oregon State, in a way that's and again that's one example, Steve. And we've got you know literally dozens of them, fifty guys on there. But but the the fact of the matter is is it's not is Steve better than the syndicates? The point you're making, I think, is Steve as. A group of Steves is the syndicate. It's That's what is. the syndicates are doing: is finding those experts, aggregating the information, and betting. Them. I couldn't have put it better myself. That's exactly what it is. And why do they come from Philly? Because, like I said, that's where there's so many outs. So where there's outs, that's where the money's going to land. So since all this, most of the syndicate money was falling there pre-internet, 
pre-offshore, that's where most of these groups came from. And most of them did like I did. They had to come to Vegas. They had to go offshore. They had to go to other places because in Philadelphia, we ended up all chasing the same nickel, same dime, same quarter. And that's why most of the syndicates and are Philly connected in some way. You know, that's and, why it comes from there. And and you got your New Yorks, you got your Boston, exactly. you got that, your that Vegas. East Coast, that little. But there, and you think about it, and, and I think the case could be made that eighty plus percent of syndicates that are U.S. based. Uh, come from four or five cities. Yeah. And, and that, like you said, you don't hear about the L.A. syndicates because it's not the culture there. No, no. Okay, so my background is, is, is sort of the same, so I'll keep it real short. Grew up uh, eastern, eastern Ohio, about an hour from Pittsburgh, uh, a coal mining area. And the reality is when I was 14, that seems to be the age, is the, the spot sheets is what we used to call them. Uh, the parlay cards is what they call them now. Came out of the mines, and I remember 14. I bet a four-teamer for 20 bucks, won 200 first bet, and that's oftentimes the stories is that first <laughs> yeah, winner. Yeah. And then I had my envelope of, of my, uh, t- uh, I guess, 10 $20 bills, and then each week I would bet 20 on the next four-teamer, and I was uh, my envelope went empty, let's just say that. <laughs> After 10 weeks. <laughs> I also spent, and this is kind of a cultural thing, is I spent... Literally, I always joke, I graduated from a high state, but I got my MBA from the dog track, is the fact of the matter is I spent about three years between 16, 17, and 18 over the dog track about five nights a week, which was about 10 minutes away where I grew up. Was that wheeling? Wheeling. Yeah, that's right. And the fact of the matter is, is I learned, just like it sounds like everyone else on this podcast learned, is being on the opposite side of the window, especially with the dogs and horses, it's a real challenge. And the way I knew that, I, you know, I was 16 years old, and there was a guy that was, you know, when you're young, you don't know how old someone is, but thinking back, he was probably about 40. I thought he was, you know, really aging. But he, uh, he used to always try to hustle me. To, he really knew the dogs. He'd be like, oh, you bet, bet 20 on this, and uh, we'll split the win. And this guy was so sharp that he, he used to go to the training races. He was there when they weren't even betting to watch the dogs. He had his big book with all the dogs in it. He really knew how to bet. I mean, but the fact is he didn't win at this. And that told me dogs weren't the way to go. And the amazing thing about this guy, he had a mathematical mind that could multiply four-digit numbers. So if I said 4,352 times 5,357, he could give you the answer in his head. And this guy was hustling a 16-year-old kid for rent money. So right then, it told me that if you're going to bet, don't do it with dogs or horses. <laughs> and it told me, you better get smart. And really, that's how pregame.com came about, was I tried to get as smart as I could. And I figured out I wasn't going to be able to do it alone. And, and the whole point of pregame is to bring the smart people together. And so that's my story now. Before we close, and, and you didn't know I was going to ask this, VR, but and not naming any names. No. The guys you grew up with, what are they doing now? How many of them have taken this experience that we've really said is necessary to be a good batter, and how many of them are doing well with it, and how many of them aren't? Because my guess is most of them aren't. Yeah, I would say most of them aren't. You're, you're absolutely right. The ones that are doing well are doing really well. You know, they took it to that next level. They're the ones that came out here like I did or went offshore. Um, the other ones is, is, like you said, aren't doing as well because this is one of the most difficult games, one of the most difficult markets to get into. 
and you have to be willing to change with it. You have to be willing to grow with it, and you can't be egotistical either. Like RJ said, yeah, it's it's gathering information. It's trusting other sources and getting them together, and, and that's why most people that get into sports betting eventually lose their bankroll. I mean, that's just how it goes. And, and that's kind of the point that I and I was guessing that, which is it's like Tiger Woods, his dad was fanatical. I was just reading recently is he literally had a golf club when he was eight months old. And his dad came up with a technique to teach him before he understood language. Think an eight-year-old doesn't understand language, right? You can't instruct him. But the reality is, as well as Tiger's doing, probably 8 out of 10 kids that are pushed that hard have problems from it. So you have a vast majority are, are, are uh, they don't benefit from that experience, but 1 out of 10 or 1 out of whatever, in the case of Tiger, 1 out of a million become world class. Yeah, and, and most, think- most betters, not to, not to cut you off, is absolutely right. And, and I mean, I love the guys that I grew up with, but most of them, yes, getting involved in this and not learning how to do it correctly cause problems in their in their marriages with their mortgages with their children with with their careers you know you, you know they end up doing a job and it's like wait I was booking and making and, myself. And it's bef- a tough life to go through. Man. And before the internet, and, and specifically before pregame.com, if you wanted to be sharp, you had to, one, most likely, in most cases, be in a culture like Philadelphia, like Pittsburgh. And, and, and a vast majority of the people in that culture are hindered by it, are hurt by it. But the handful that aren't are the ones with the knowledge and intuition that's able to truly win down the road. And what we do a pregame is aggregate those people and luckily for you guys who don't live in Philly and don't have to grow up in that environment you can benefit from their experience without having to take the big risks associated with that kind of upbringing yeah it's like I said when I have a child and I said I would never allow my child to do what I did although I make a great living for myself my family and everyone else who is you know I'm responsible for I, what I had to go through, you know, the trials, the turbulate, whatever, the, a lot, a lot, man, I could tell you some things. Uh, I wouldn't want my child to have to go through it. I wouldn't want someone I love to have to go through it to get to a successful level that I had in this industry. You got to go through a lot, man. Well, I tell you, this has been interesting, and, and to me, the real takeaways are, again, experience from that culture like a Philadelphia, like a Pittsburgh is invaluable. There's big risks with it, but if you're able to emerge from it, you have that experience that, that very few people have. And the beauty is with the internet today, with pregame.com, you're able to aggregate those survivors, and we all get to benefit from it. So thank you. VR, thank you, Marco. And this has been a special subject pregame.com podcast.